Welcome to In Conversation, a series of captivating and insightful dialogues with leading writers, artists, and spiritual teachers. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound. An oasis in Vancouver since 1970, Banyan is a gathering place of the world's wisdom and healing traditions. Come by for a visit or find us at banyan.com for live events, books, and more. This is Farnas Raleigh, and I'm thrilled to be here with Stephen Jenkinson, teacher, author, storyteller, ceremonialist, spiritual activist, and founder of the Orphan Wisdom School, a teaching house and learning house for skills of deep living and the making of human culture. It's really hard to introduce you, Stephen, uh, <laughs> and really hard to know what questions to ask you because your knowledge is so profound and so um, relevant. So let's just start by talking about your um, manifesto, Die Wise. What birthed that manifesto? Oh, boy. Well, you know, if you speak with too much authority about what you yourself have done, it sounds like you were on it the whole time, and that's far from the truth. It's certainly not at my command, but I was there, and I remember a few things. And one of them was, you know, <clears throat> I, I got into the the death trade, and I was willing in the early days. You know, I was taking di- direction pretty well playing in the sandbox nicely with the others, all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the thing that started to get to me was, first of all, there wasn't a lot of curiosity about what we were doing. There was a lot of certainty about it. And um, I was in my 40s by then, and I didn't really trust certainty that much anymore. It's kind of a, it's, it's an amateur's mistake, you could say. <laughs> Having it and thinking that it's necessary is, a, is an amateur's mistake. But a pro is a pro because they know how to be ambivalent about the undertaking and, um, and, and to find a way to proceed, but to do so with a combination of, you know, hesitancy and uh, some circumspection that allows them uh, to be wrong and to second guess themselves and to get it right. And I didn't see any of that at all. And uh, so that was the first thing that got me going. The next thing was um, the stuff that passed for, what you could call a good care or compassionate care or dignified dying, all of that kind of thing relied enormously <clears throat> on antidepressants and sedation at various stages of the game. Of course, not for everybody, but frequently enough that you began to ask yourself, what kind of dignity is it if it's bought with this much medication? That was the other thing. Those two things together prompted me to wonder if we were doing what everybody thought we were doing, which is deliver, to deliver on everyone's right to die well. And it turned out that the definition of dying well didn't include a lot of consciousness, didn't include a lot of awareness, and didn't include a lot of questioning or sorrowing or real substantial grief. Those all seemed to get in the way. So um, between those three things, I guess I... I found myself an outlier, an outsider uh, in the Citadel, and uh, 
it was only they're only going to tolerate you going yeah but for so long obviously uh, while i was there i got a pretty good chance to uh get a good lay of the land and and they um they gave me a pretty nice position you know i was i was you know in charge of everything that was non-medical in the largest home-based palliative care service in the country for a while so i'm not shooting from the hip of what i'm saying to you I mean, I, that's what I saw, and I've no reason to lie, and I've no reason to exaggerate. And um, somehow, when it came time to write about these things, years and years later, the word manifesto was the obvious word to choose to describe the position that I had taken. And I'm kind of ad, ad, adversity's right-hand man when it comes to the Citadel now. And, um, you know, I guess in, at some level it made me a little dangerous for the, the status quo, but much more importantly... You know, my own status is irrelevant, but much more importantly, you know, dying people did de- deserve a lot of um, willingness on the professional end to learn more and not to be in the uh, customer satisfaction business any longer. But I don't see anybody willing to forego the pleasures and the privileges of being in that business. And so, such as it is, my little um, enterprise shows no sign of becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm. So I have many questions now. Yeah. But yeah. the first one is grief. You mentioned yeah. uh, not a, a lack of willingness to really face or understand how to, how to face grief. Well, can I, can I uh, quibble with the phrasing and say it's not a matter of facing grief because that sure puts you in some kind of uh like regal chair regarding that thing and it's i think it's much better to say grieve not how to face grief how to mm-hmm. grieve mm-hmm. turn into a verb you know turn not in turn into an adversary turn it into a skill i mean that was essentially i guess my program such as it was was to advocate on behalf of grief if you can believe that and that's what uh, Tim Wilson, who made the film about me for the National Film Board, must have seen. Because as an afterthought, almost, he called the movie about me Grief Walker. Mm-hmm. So and I think intuitively he knew that I was making the case for grief, not making a program for how to deal with it, how to cope with it, and when that fails, how to medicate it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the act itself of grieving. Yeah, it's, you know, grieving is not reserved for people who are sad. It's not reserved for people who are dying, God knows. So grief is a, is a human skill, and I think it comes from a somewhat grown-up willingness to realize <clears throat> that if you play by the rules, if you do all the right things, if you eat enough bran, if you think enough good thoughts, if you visit your doctor every year, if, 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 none of this buys you what you imagine it's going to buy you. These are good things to do, don't get me wrong. But they're not an insurance policy to see to it that nothing goes sideways. Mm-hmm. Stuff goes sideways the time for people who play by the rules. And for people who don't play by the rules, they you know smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for, for 75 years, not a trace of lung cancer. Go figure. So I don't have the answer as to why it is the way it is, but there is something about grief that's a knowledgeable and and uh, deeply sensitive undertaking 
where you look at human life and go, okay, this is not a meritocracy. This is not a reward system. This is something in the order of love. That's what it, that's what it asks for, and that's how it proceeds. And there is something in the, in the nature of love, it seems to me, that you don't get more love back by loving. Like, that's not the program. The program is, is to become capable of loving, come what may. And, you know, what comes back is all over the place. You don't love and as a consequence, you know, um, become loved and beloved necessarily. No more so than if you love somebody because you say yes to them, it means they're not going to leave you. It means they're not going to die on you. If you love somebody, I mean, this is grief speaking now. If you love somebody, you love them unto their death, unto the end of what you hold dear. And that's the great dare, I suppose, of being a human being and being conscious, is to be willing to love something that's not going to last. And so that's, what could you call that but a grief-endorsed understanding of life? That's what I call it anyway. Mm-hmm. So a big part of grief and love is uncertainty, impermanence, some of the realities of life here on Earth. Yeah, it's a little more than just seeing that. It's finding a way that's almost diabolical because it's so counterintuitive to, in a way, expose yourself to it and say yes, you see, and line up for it and sign up for for that kind of duty. Yeah, that's what makes you a grown-up. So I would say grief, although it's not reserved for grown-ups, but it might be a grown-up undertaking and a a grown-up skill, and it needs grown-ups and... uh, you know, that has nothing to do with what your birth certificate says. Grown up <laughs> um, So I want to come back to a question I had um, when you mentioned the word manifesto. Tell me more about why that particular word. Well, <clears throat> you know, I didn't invent the word or its meaning. And, you know, both you and I can feel that there's a kind of a, Almost a, a grievance, if you will, that uh, underlies the word. There's a sense that things are not as they should be, and that there's a willingness to become deeply activated, to be engaged, uh, to be troubled, you know, not to seek reassurance for its own sake, which is what you get from politicians, but to be willing to see things for what they are and then what they ask of you. I called it a manifesto for sanity and soul. But my original uh, subtitle for it, which the focus groups, the distributors, poo-pooed because they said it sounded too much like um, some evangelical book. But the original subtitle was a manifesto for sanity in the ending of days. That's what I wanted to call it. Mm-hmm. And I'll never knuckle under again. I'll tell you that. I'll never knuckle under again. I don't think the current subtitles bad. It doesn't underserve the book or the ideas, but it's, um, it was a compromise that didn't have to be made, frankly. Well, mm-hmm. As it stands, though, a manifesto for sanity, yes, and for soul, yes. And sometimes those things can be diabolically separated, sanity and soul. And you do so at the expense of either one 
or the other, it seems to me. So this is actually a lunge towards trying to reunite them in a circumstance where dying is mainly seen as a metabolic biomedical event. So uh, the question that's coming up in my heart right now is what does dying have to do with the earth and our relationship to the planet? I guess it comes down to this for me. You look around at the so-called natural world and one of the things you see is that it is not life that feeds or generates life. It's not life that sustains life. It's not life that keeps life going. There's nothing about life that's life generating. Life is consuming. It's not generating. Life is on the take in every sense that that word can be understood. It's death in all its metabolic forms across the natural order of things that clearly and consistently gives life. Every living thing is rooted in the death of what preceded it. You know, just look at the forest floor, mm-hmm. there it is. Look at your garden, there it is. Now you look at human affairs, at least in our corner of the world here in North America, and ask yourself whether or not you see, as you look around, that the cultural life that surrounds you is willing itself to perpetuate the next generation by living its natural course and dying when and how it must. If you look around, I think you look in vain for that kind of thing. You can see exceptions, but that's the tragedy of it, that there are exceptions. The norm is people getting everything they can for as long as they can. And so uh, we, we somehow, uh, it's, it's bad enough that our way of living is hard enough on the planet, but mysteriously, our way of dying is just as hard because we want to exempt ourselves from the food chain, you know, when it suits us to do so. We never exempted ourselves when we were on the take, never. But now that it's time to, to participate in that way as a sustainer of the food chain, no thanks. Now, you, you can't think of a recipe that's designed for more deep existential loneliness for us than that. I'm not sure I understood the last part of what you said. About the loneliness? Yes. But well, I... it's pretty simple. It's, um, if, you were, if you were part of a royal family, let's just imagine this. And, uh, you know, the upside of being a royal is that um, everything comes to you on a silver platter. Now, ask yourself, what are your friendships likely to be? How's that likely to go? Are you ever able to meet people accidentally and form kind of enduring bonds with them based on the fact that you're in some way recognize each other or are equal in any way at all? And the answer is that'll never happen. Mm-hmm. Well... Human beings in the Western world are something like that, in that we are deeply the beneficiaries of the natural order of things, but not in many ways are we its sustainer or ally. And, you know, underneath whatever guilt feelings might be in there, I think there's an enormous amount of fundamental existential loneliness and separation from what sustains us. And I think that's what comes to call 
frankly, when people are dying. It doesn't mean that people think of these things in the way that I'm saying them to you now, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that they're not in the mix somewhere because they are. Do you think that spending more time in direct contact with the natural world would change fundamentally uh, that relationship and our own relationship with dying? Not, not automatically, not inevitably, no. I mean, if you look around, it's my impression that people are out and about in their Gore-Tex more than perhaps ever before. And the same time that they're out there climbing every mountain and, you know, swimming every stream, the situation, as I described it to you, is proliferating. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to recognize that, that we Westerners have a capacity to resist the pull and the draw of the natural world so fundamentally that we consistently um, set ourselves up to be its, its guides, <laughs> That's hilarious. And it's protectors. That's hilarious, too. Uh, and mostly it's beneficiaries. But never to be tutored by it, to be schooled by it, to be reduced in our expectation by it. Never to take a back seat to it. Never to say, you know, it's bigger than anything I could think of. It's time I was quiet and, uh, and took my direction from the way it actually is. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone actually say that or or do it. I'm sure people do. But if you're asking me on the you know on the broad strokes, do I think it's a given or it's inevitable that more time in the wilderness or the bush or at the seaside is going to deeply sensitize you to become a more humble um, sort of partner in the life of the world instead of its principal uh, beneficiary and adversary? I would say to you, there's nothing inevitable about that. It's all. I don't see people change uh, because everything's working out for them. If there's any change to be done, it seems to come from things going pretty badly. If there's any change at all, I should say to you. So, if I take it around to what I saw, ask yourself, is, is dying one of those times that you think is made to measure to bring out the best in people? whereby they finally see what has escaped them up until now. And their humility comes forward, and wisdom blossoms, and their capacity for deep compassion towards all life forms, etc. <laughs> Is that what I saw? <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. Yes, I do. It's not what I saw. So if, if dying doesn't do it for us, she's going to do it for us? See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So We're up against it here, you see. So you mentioned in the first question, um, consciousness. How does that, how is that response or how does that awaken? I mean, you mentioned uh, usually it's only when things don't go the way we want that somehow we become receptive to doing things differently. You have to keep saying maybe when you say things like that. (laughs) Because it's not inevitable. I look, you could say it this way. If things going crazy was a recipe for us getting sane, everybody would be sane tomorrow, wouldn't they? Because mm-hmm. God knows it's crazy enough. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So you've got to say maybe. But on this matter of, of consciousness, you use a word at the end of your question I would rather use than consciousness, and that is awakenness. And if you just look at the etymology of the word, it tells you something. It doesn't have nothing to do with 
you know, arising from slumber. And it doesn't have anything to do with, um, uh, let's see, evading being in error or things of that kind. It literally means this. The A prefix, the old English meaning of the A prefix means to be of or with or in, you could say, depending on the use. And then, and then the root word is wake, which you know in two forms. In English, one of them is if you're making your way through the water, you look behind you. There's the wake. And the other form it takes, of course, is when somebody dies. There's that wake, too, which is amounts to the same thing. Because it's their death that has put that wake, you, if you will, into high relief, right? Mm-hmm. Just as the way they lived put the wake into motion. Put the word back together, and what is the condition of being awake? And the answer is, it's to become bound to the um, the eddy and the and the range of consequence that fanned out from every little thing you did and didn't do and said and didn't say, personally speaking and culturally speaking. That's the condition of being awake. That's the condition I'm advocating. And that's why I spoke about grief earlier, because I think it's virtually impossible and unnecessary to become awake and to do so somehow not bitten, if you will, or, or visited deeply by grief. I don't think it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to become devastated and in so doing to become alert. So awake is, is not necessarily tied to pleasant or pleasurable experiences. Especially, but... not, especially not these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst thing you can do when you're covering from a cold or the flu is borrow your friend's social justice documentary collection. That'll about drive you nuts right there. You watch three documentaries on fracking and the food supply, and I don't know, you know, choose your other uh, demon. And uh, by the third one, you're, you're begging for mercy uh, because, you know, too much information of any kind, but that in particular, what will that do to you? What are you supposed to do? It's like watching the news. Mm-hmm. You know, every 45 seconds, there's another thing that pulls on you so desperately, and then they change the tone and drop something else in there, and, then, and that's all the attention span your heart can afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how can you be, as a human, you know, how can you respond to these things? And, and the answer is, I don't know if we're allowed to be profane here on, the, on your interview, but slow the fuck down. That's what I'm talking about. Slow down. You won't be able to do everything. You won't be able to understand everything. You won't be able to get everything said. You won't be able to meet all the friends you haven't met yet. Slow down and see if you can find out what life is asking of you instead of what can you get out of it while you still have time. Mm -hmm. That's a very different question. Yes, Mm ma'am. Well... We could end... It's a conversation killer, isn't it? (laughs) Well, not so much a conversation killer as much as an invitation to reflect. I think that's a very deep invitation. I hope it is. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, it has been... um... A ride. Yes, that's a great way of describing it. (laughs) Yes, it's been a ride, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure to uh, share the airwaves with you. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to In Conversation, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970.